0: So friends, can you think of a more classic? Can you possibly think of a more quintessential Jesus story than this one? Even if before this morning you have never before entered a church, I'm guessing that you have probably heard that line before, let ye without sin cast the first stone. Heck, you probably used it at some point in your life when someone's coming at you in a real judgy manner. Let ye without sin cast the first stone. Personally, in my own life, I use it when my wife's coming at me for leaving all the kitchen cabinet doors open. Sarah, let ye without sin cast the first stone. Not only is this a classic quintessential Jesus story, but practical too, right? Get Sarah off my back for a little bit. So here's how the story breaks down. Jesus and his disciples have once again returned to the great city of Jerusalem. Last time we heard about Jesus coming to Jerusalem he was in town to celebrate Passover. This time he is in town to celebrate what is known as the Festival of the Tabernacles. And for the Festival of the Tabernacles thousands of Jews from all over the world would gather in Jerusalem in order to remind themselves of how God had cared for their ancestors when they were wandering through their wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. And the way they liked to remember that was by constructing for themselves kind of makeshift shelters out of palm fronds and sticks and what have you. So they would build these little shelters, these little tents, and they would stay in those tents. They would sleep there overnight for the whole week that they were in Jerusalem. In very broad strokes, you can kind of think of it as religious camp camp. So in other words, in other words, for this Festival of the Tabernacles, we have thousands of people gathered in one place, spending the week chanting and praying and sacrificing, celebrating and feasting and living in these makeshift shelters on the side of a hill in Jerusalem, and drinking a whole lot of wine the whole week through. So given that context, and you know, given human nature, can you see, can you see how two people might wake up in the wrong tent, regretting the decisions that they made the night before? Even two thousand years later, it's not all that surprising to us that the next morning, some religious teacher, teachers are able to find and drag into the temple courts a woman that they caught with a man who was not her husband. Notably. Uh, They do not bring in the man that she was caught with because patriarchy. In any case, they bring this poor woman before Jesus, but they are not, it's not because they're super pious people and that they're really concerned with the fact that she had committed some sort of sin, uh, but rather they're doing it because Jesus has been saying and doing some pretty controversial things. If you recall, last time that he was in Jerusalem, he went into the temple and overturned a bunch of tables. He fashioned a whip for himself and he chased everybody out of the temple. And these teachers, they do not like it one bit. And so they come to him trying to trip him up. So they haul this woman before Jesus and they say to him, our scriptures teach that this woman should be stoned to death. Jesus, what do you you say. Now the reason this is so tricky is because on the one hand, if he he contradicts the Old Testament laws that say that this woman should be put to death, he would have been declared a blasphemer and a heretic, and he himself would have been stoned right there on the spot. But on, on the other hand, if he agrees with these teachers, and says, yes, this woman should be stoned to death, that would seem to contradict all this business about love and forgiveness and grace that he has been preaching about. He would be exposed as the fraud that all of these religious teachers believe that he is. So they have him in a pretty tight spot here, it's true. But this is a classic Jesus story, right? So Jesus being Jesus, What does he do? He pops a squat so to speak and he starts writing something in the dust with his fingers. Now no one is exactly sure what he is writing in the dust with his fingers. A lot of people speculate and if you're interested in going down this rabbit hole I invite you to google it after church and there's lots of people with like blogs that are written on geocities and tripod who have like all these conspiracy theories about what he's writing in. It's it's a trip if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, But but no one knows exactly sure what it is he's writing, and in truth, it doesn't really matter. Because after he's writing in the dust for a little bit, he stands up and he, he looks these religious teachers in the eyes and he says, yeah, sounds good. Let's do this thing. You go and you get your favorite murder rock and we'll have a go at her, but, says Jesus, but let you who has not sinned throw the first stone. After he drops that little truth bomb, he then squats back down, continues writing something in the dirt with his finger, and one by one, the woman's accusers slink away ashamed. So, to summarize what just happened, we have some folks with ill intentions come up and try to put Jesus in a bind. But, like some spiritual chess master with some out of the box thinking and an ample dose of grace, Jesus is able to ever so masterfully turn the tables into a more loving and forgiving direction. Like I said earlier, this is just a classic Jesus story, is it not? It has all the hallmarks of a quintessential story about Jesus. There's just one little problem with this story though, one little problem with this classic quintessential Jesus story. Namely, it is 100% fictional. It It was made up, totally made up. The Gospel of John was written in the year 90. This story was inserted into the text around the year Now, how do we know that? Uh, We know that because the style of writing uh, and even the grammar and the words used in this story are vastly different from anything else that we find in the Gospel of John. Uh, And we can actually see how this works in English. Uh, We're going to do a little experiment here. Uh, I'm going to read to you a few lines from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. However, I've used uh, ChatGPT, that new IA, I, AI, rather, text generator thing, to translate part of it into more modern English. Uh, so, so see if you can tell when the transition takes place. I, I guess this is the, the listening comprehension portion of our worship service today. <laughs> uh, so here we go. Romeo and Juliet. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east and Juliet the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon who is already sick and pale with grief, that thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. Juliet's looking sexy AF. (laughs) But her family wants to yeet me out of existence, and that's just a straight up bummer, fam. I'm trying to slide into her DMs, but it's like, hold up, let's pump the brakes. But you know what? I'm gonna keep it real and make it work because she's worth it, no cap. Now it was subtle, but did you did you catch the transition there? Yeah. So that's essentially what today's story sounds like to Greek scholars. That's how they know that it is not original to the Gospel of John. And any worthwhile Bible translation will actually have this passage in brackets or they'll have a big old asterisk next to it uh, to let you know that well, to you and me, it seems like it fits in seamlessly, seamlessly rather, to the Gospel of John. Uh, and while there's really no doubt in our minds, is there, that if Jesus was put into this situation, that is exactly what he would have done. Uh, but even though that is the case, those brackets are there to let us know that the story is not genuine, that it is, in fact, 100% made up. But I want to go out on a limb this morning and suggest to us that the fact that this isn't a genuine Jesus story, I want to suggest that that isn't a necessarily bad thing. And in fact, in some ways, I think it's kind of instructive for us. And and the reason I think as much uh, has, of all things, something to do with the game of chess. So, starting back in the 16th century, chess players started uh, recording, keeping fastidious records of all the games that they played. They'd write down every single move, every counter move, every counter, counter, counter move of every single chess game that they played. And by the 1950s, the Moscow Central Chess Club had amassed a literal library just full of chess moves. It was a big, musty room full of shelves, and on the shelves there were these little boxes, and in the boxes there, there were index cards uh, that contained on them all the moves used in a particular game of chess that occurred sometime in the past. Now, at the time, there were only about three or four players in the entire world who had access to this library of chess moves. And what these three or four players would do was when they were coming up against a, a new opponent, uh, they would go to this library, and they would pull the box that contained all of that opponent's past games, and they would memorize literally thousands of their opponent's moves. So they knew just how their opponent played, and they would know just how to beat them. But somehow, some way, in the 1980s, the, the Russian Chess Federation was convinced to put all of this information into an online database to make it publicly available and to let people add their own chess games to it. And when they did that, what happened was that this database, which is nicknamed Fritzy, uh, it just exploded in size to the extent that nowadays, when chess masters sit down to play a chess game, they have memorized tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of moves from this database. And one of the interesting things you can do with this, Fritzi, is you can enter into any move, and it will tell you how many times that move has been used in the entire recorded history of chess. Nerdy? Yes. But I think that's pretty cool. And here's how the typical game of chess plays out. If you enter any opening move into this Fritzy database, you will discover that that move has been played somewhere in the realm of about 2 million times before. You put in the second move and you'll discover that the second move has probably been played somewhere in the, the 500,000 range. Enter the third move and that number goes down to about 300,000 times that has been played before. By the sixth move, that number is down to 90,000. By the seventh move, it's down to about 2,500. And down and down, that number creeps until somewhere around between the the 15th and the 20th move, the pieces on the chessboard will be in a position that is completely unique, that is 100% novel, that has never before occurred in the history of the universe. And that is because, according to mathematicians, there are more ways to finish a game of chess than there are atoms in the universe. Ten to the hundred and second power, if you're a math person that means something to you, it means nothing to me, but it sounds like a very big number. That's how many possibilities there are to finish out a game of chess. Which is to say that from the 15th move or so on, you are left entirely to your own devices, right? Having memorized specific moves and counter-moves and counter-counter-counter-moves is going to do you no good. It then becomes a question of how all that study, about how that memorizing, all that learning, how it's formed and molded you such that you can respond competently and skillfully and masterfully to this new frontier that you are on that nobody has ever been before. That's kind of what we're working at too, isn't it? We're not here to memorize a bunch of antiquated rules and regulations from the Bible and then apply them to our lives in some sort of legalistic manner. That's not our point. That's not why we're here. That's not what we're doing. No, the reason that Protestant churches like this one are so very obsessed with reading about and talking about the Bible week in and week out is so that we can get to a place where the stories of the Bible, these stories about Jesus, these stories about God's unconditional love and forgiveness and acceptance, is so that we can get to a place where these stories aren't just rules and regulations, but they become part of us. That they form us and mold us so that when we encounter entirely novel situations, entirely new frontiers, like some sort of spiritual chess masters, right? We can respond to those situations skillfully, competently, masterfully, always turning the tables into a more loving, forgiving, and grace-filled direction. Jesus never had to navigate the ethics of late-stage capitalism. He never had to worry about the deleterious effects of social media. He never had to concern himself with school shootings or with climate change. We have no historical records to tell us how he dealt with any of those situations. Nevertheless, hope is that 2,000 years from now when we're dead and gone and people are looking back at the stories of our lives, we're hoping that folks will look back and say the same thing that we say about today's fictitious story from the Gospel of John. Yeah, they'll say, Jesus may have never been put in that situation, but if he had, right, if Jesus had, that is exactly how he would have responded friends may it be so amen